Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, July 2nd. We begin with a look at the benefits of telemedicine. We get the thoughts of a doctor and policy researcher from McMaster University on whether he thinks the practice should remain in place post-pandemic. It's the story of the big guy helping out the little guy. We hear details of a new initiative launched by Kijiji aiming to promote small local businesses. Bots and trolls control much of the online content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We catch up with a professor and social media researcher with an explanation on how this is happening and what we can do about it. The pandemic has affected our world in so many ways, but it's also meant an increase in our cost of living. We'll get the details on a new Ipsos poll on what Canadians say we're now paying more for. And finally, what do the band Walk Off the Earth and French's Ketchup have in common? They're both 100% made in Canada, and they teamed up to celebrate our nation's birthday. We meet lead singer Sarah Blackwood and hear their saucy version of O Canada. It's 6.42 now, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, many Canadians were accessing health care via video and mobile technology, which was highlighting the benefits of telehealth. So should that be something that is here to stay? We're joined by medical doctor and health policy researcher at McMaster University to figure it out, Dr. Ahmad Khalid. Morning, doctor. How are you? Good morning. Good to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. So does it seem like telemedicine then is something both physicians and patients are interested in keeping? Absolutely. I think for the longest time what we were seeing is that there was a bit of a resistance from the system to adapt to this idea of implementing telehealth across the country. But what COVID-19 has done really, it's put this extra fire under the wood is what I would like to call it. And really sort of push the idea that we need telehealth that people have seen the benefit of it, that physicians appreciate uh, the implementation of it. And now government, uh, governments across all our provinces are really looking keen into making this more of a stable thing in our system. Dr. Khalid, you, you break it down to four main areas why this is a benefit. If you want to list off those four for us. Sure. So for me, it's always it comes to the patient first. Uh, I think we need to make sure that our patients get access to care in a timely way, an appropriate way. And telehealth does that. In the comfort of your own home, uh, you are provided care so you don't have to waste time taking uh, time off work to access your family physician or actually leaving your home in case of a mobility issue. You're able to access that care at home in a timely way. That's number one. But number two, also, it saves the system a lot of money. And, the, and by that, I mean that when we see patients getting the care in an appropriate time, in an early time frame, we less, there'll be less crowding in emergency rooms and there'll be less time in hospitalization. And we all know that when people, when patients are hospitalized, it actually costs the, costs the system and the individual quite a lot of money. And third, evidence-based medicine. It helps us make sure that our physicians who are practicing in the field have access to our patients' information in a timely manner and are able to exchange that information between family physicians and specialists in a much more easier, comprehensive way than we currently have. And lastly, and obviously there are many other reasons, but those are the four more important ones, is that we're able to make sure that uh, physicians are uh, providing care that, that's conducive to the practice. And by that I mean is that they're wasting less time between transitioning between one patient to another and actually maximizing the time they're actually seeing patients. Mm-hmm. So how do, what do we do next? I mean, how do we go about it? Is, it? is it on the patient now to push doctors and try to make sure that this infrastructure just continues to be built out and it's something we can always get at? Or are the doctors behind the push for to making this bigger and better? That's an excellent question. I think it's twofold. I think it's both us, the patients, the people of Canada, 
sort of pushing forward this idea that we are happy about telehealth and we want it. We're seeing that across provinces, across the country. We're seeing more and more patients speak up and say, you know, my mother, who's 61 years old, I'll share that with you. She had, uh, she needed, a, she had problems in her hand during COVID. She really enjoyed being able to access her family doctor and now is making it public whenever she can't tell others of her friends, a similar age demographic, how good it was for her. We need more people to showcase that, but we also need our policymakers to really put forward legislation that allows better funding models. Because currently, if you're a doctor in Alberta trying to see a patient in Ontario, you can't be paid for it. You have to be paid within oh. the province. That causes a bit of a problem. Okay. So obviously pushed to the forefront uh, because of the pandemic, something we've talked about as Canadians for quite some time when it comes to telemedicine. Does this bring us on par with other areas of the world or or other areas of the world uh, ahead of us when it comes to using something like this for healthcare? Yes, I think we are looking at, you know, you have to remember in Canada, we were a pioneer. We're one of the early ones who actually were championing telehealth. And for many, many reasons, we sort of lagged behind. And now we're trying to play catch up. And we are getting there. We look at Australia, a country that has a similar health system than ours. They're also very much uh, on a fast track towards making telehealth the main form of delivering care in Australia. They did it because of COVID and it really spread the process. A fascinating discussion and it just makes sense. Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor, with your perspective on this. Happy to speak to you. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Ahmad Khalid talking about telemedicine. Is it here to stay? 647, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. flashing in the southeast at Ogden Road and 50th Avenue, so that'll require a couple of extra minutes to get through, but uh, otherwise, the major southeast routes are off to a good start to your foot trail northbound, sitting at nine minutes from Stony Trail up towards 17th Avenue, 52nd Street, great option out of New Brighton and Mackenzie Town, all the way up towards Glenmore Trail, and Glenmore itself, westbound lanes, you're coming in from Langdon or heading off the Stony Trail, are uh, problem-free all the way out towards Deerfoot. We also have a collision up in the northwest, impacting westbound Northmount Drive, just after 14th Street. Emergency crews are blocking that single lane, so uh, you are using uh, single-lane alternating traffic on the eastbound side to get by. Ever wonder what that blue cow logo stands for? It means a Canadian dairy farmer worked hard to bring you high-quality Canadian dairy. So take a moment to be proud. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. Kijiji is launching a new shop local section on their site within their Kijiji village to help us easily find businesses in our neighborhoods that are open and offering some form of contactless payment or pickup. Joining us with all the details is Kent Sixstrom, who is the community relations manager for Kijiji Canada. Hi, Kent. How's it going today? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain, first of all, start with Kijiji village, because I know that's something new that you introduced not too long ago. Absolutely. So Kijiji Village is our latest category that we launched a couple of months ago, uh, really when the pandemic started to become a surge in Canada and across the world. And what we saw at the time was that there were many people who were going through hardship at the outset, and they were looking to either offer support to the community or seek support from, again, uh, their local community in general. And so we created Kijiji Village as a platform, as a destination to help connect local communities so they could find the support that they needed. So the village is up and running, and then you decide to take it one step further, and under the umbrella of the village, uh, really make a difference for those people who, who uh, you know, have local businesses and give them a chance to shine. Is that right? Exactly. So I think we can all agree that 
small and medium-sized businesses are the heart and soul of our communities. Uh, they really make our neighborhoods great places to live and work. And we recognized that so many businesses across Canada have had their operations disrupted. But at the same time, so many of these businesses have adapted and have become resilient very quickly. And so they've started to offer contactless options, as the, the term you used earlier, to help Canadians continue to find what they need. And so we created this Shop Local Businesses landing page, which is sort of, a, of an offshoot of Kijiji Village, where inventory offered by these businesses um, is available and that they offer uh, some contactless transaction in some way, shape or form. I see it. It's easy to find. You open up your Kijiji app and there it is. It's got a little nice Canadian maple leaf and it says Kijiji Village. So easy to track it down. Was there a demand for this? Were you getting businesses asking you for this help? Or is this something Kijiji just said, hey, you know what? This is going to make things easier for everybody involved. I think it was a mixture of both, quite honestly. Um, what I love about our community is that they're very vocal about what they want and need. <laughs> and Kijiji really is a staple for so many people. And so we, we listened to the feedback from the community, businesses who were desperate to offer their inventory on the site, but they also recognized that a lot of people were reticent to necessarily you know, go out in person or go to a shop. Many shops weren't even open to begin with. And so we recognized the community need for such a section, and we allowed people to indicate these new contactless attributes um, so that people would understand which businesses were open and what types of alternative transactions they offered. Ken, can you give us an idea of what types of business have taken advantage of this? Are these strictly like, you know, smaller shops that sell products? Are they services as well, or does it run the gamut? Mm -hmm. It's quite a gamut, honestly. Um, so when you're talking about uh, this curated section and looking at the different types of businesses, you're looking at things like, you know, people offering home and garden, like patio and garden furniture for sale. Uh, you're looking at online tutors or music teachers who are offering lessons online. Um, you're looking at fitness instructors who are doing yoga classes online. I personally have done some form of online meditation as well. Uh, landscaping, outdoor maintenance, electronics companies, really is a wide spectrum here. Let's face it too, Kent. I mean, during this pandemic, we were cleaning out our homes like mad, getting rid of stuff, selling stuff, maybe buying something different. What are people doing in terms of, you know, searches and, and purchases in Alberta right now on Kijiji? What's big? It's really interesting. So uh, if you go back to March and sort of trace uh, back over the last couple of months, you really see three areas where Canadians were particularly interested. Uh, so number one, people were very desperate to stay in shape, I think. And I think myself, I, I'm certainly included in that category. And so we actually saw quite a surge in searches for bicycles and like stationary mm -hmm. bikes, like mm -hmm. ellipticals, uh, free weights, gym equipment in general. And that was, that was definitely a big one. The second one that we saw was an increase in um, basically outdoor and garden supplies. So people staying at home or stuck at home realizing, hey, this is the perfect time actually to work on my garden or to do that renovation that I've been putting off for a couple of years. So that was really interesting to see. And then finally, uh, for gamers like myself, we saw a huge surge in video game searches for consoles, especially for the Nintendo Switch. And um, that also incorporates electronics like computers and home office and things like that. So very understandable, but it's always very interesting to see what people are particularly interested by. So true. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Kent. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That is Kent Sixtrom, Community Relations Manager for Kijiji Canada.
I love that they are doing that and, you know, helping out the smaller little retailers because everybody needs a little boost right now in terms of, you know, we've mm-hmm. lost so much in the last three months of being out and about and spending our money. So to give a little boost, a little helping hand to yeah. local retailers, I think is super smart. Well, we're seeing, we're seeing this crossover because these online companies see the value. Um, and I think of a couple of examples. Look at Etsy. From mm-hmm. what I, I've never been on Etsy. From what I understand, they focus on local businesses. Yeah. Then you look at Walmart. We announced it in our business report, I think, last month or a month and a half ago, that Walmart online is going to dedicate a section to used items. So obviously going so after the Kijiji. Let's get some of that money. The so, marketplaces of the world. And you can't be everything to everybody. But, you know, for example, you look at these crossovers, and I know that you're a bigger user uh, on Facebook Marketplace than Kijiji. I used to be big on Kijiji, but it seems sort of everybody moved over to Marketplace. But maybe with this addition... Uh, of you know the village with through Kijiji, maybe that's their attempt to get everybody to come back. I mean, it's smart, makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and to Kent's uh, points there within the interview, I at the very beginning started to look at fitness equipment. I had the greatest intentions in the world, and <laughs> you were a little late to the party, <laughs> though. Very, everybody else had the same idea. Was. Yeah. So yeah, the ebb and flow is crazy, and even during the pandemic, I have. I've not sold anything on Kijiji. I'm a bigger seller than, uh, you know, buyer. But yeah, me too. particularly if, if, if it's sitting there, if it's collecting dust, why not let somebody else get use out of it? And maybe you make a couple bucks. Maybe you can go for dinner or buy a pizza from those proceeds. Absolutely. But I was looking for, um, in the pandemic, the other thing is with the, the physical fitness equipment, and we heard, you know, that it was uh, yeast run runs on yeast, different things. Yep. Basketball nets. I've won, yes. I've won one for my alley. And trampolines. Yeah. Oh, trampolines. You went through Forget that as well. It. You, looked, you looked on the used market. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I looked on the new market first. Well, I looked on the used market, couldn't find anything. Looked on the new market. Uh, everybody was sold out, even the Toys R Us, uh, the Sport Checks, Canadian Tires. But then finally on Kijiji one day, and it's interesting because they have algorithms like anything else, which is interesting because we're going to be talking about your online searches and the information that's collected later in the program. This little basketball net uh, popped up. It was 20 bucks. I have to get the hardware and, you know, because it's, yeah, it's older. Sure. And uh, I offered him 15 because that's how I roll. So he took 15. So I went up to his garage. He was cleaning out his garage. He stood his distance. Yeah. I uh, handed the money over as far as I could reach, and I took this basketball net. So the, the deals are still to be had. Oh, absolutely. You just have to be on top. I've sold a bunch of stuff through the pandemic, and I just leave it out on the front step. You know, not expensive stuff, because then you know, you're maybe a little iff- but iffy. You but, get, but you got to underline and underscore that you want to get rid of it anyway, Exactly. Right? So, you know, if I can make $15, $20, and somebody gets something that they really wanted, I, f- I feel it's a great thing. So you ju- I just leave it out on the front porch. I ask them to stick the money under the yeah. rug at the front door. Bada boom, bada bing, contactless. You get what you want. I get what I want, and life is good. Have you been part of that one system where they have the bins on the front? Yes. Door? Yeah. Is that is that Facebook Marketplace or is that different? That's I think Marketplace, but I think any of them do it now. They yeah, just the call bin. it the bin system. The bin system. You you, you see the bin, Simple. you put it in, you put your money in, yeah. and they take their bin away at the end of the day, yep. and you're good to go. It's safe. It's it's it was contactless before contactless was cool. Right. True. Oh man, so many different ways. But uh, Kijiji, got to give them a tip of the hat when and whenever the the big guys are doing some for local businesses. Mm-hmm. It's 617. Now it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city. You've heard reports that hackers and even foreign governments are using social media to manipulate and hack you, and you're likely wondering, how can it happen? So to find out, we are chatting this morning with social media researcher and a professor of computer science at Clarkson University in New York, Gina Matthews. Hi, Gina. 
Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. I was reading your article and we just thought it was fascinating and needed to get a, a little bit of a deeper dive to try and figure things out. So you talk in, in your article a lot about bots and the role they play within social media. So can you break down some of what what maybe we don't even have any ideas happening right now? Yeah, I think most people would be surprised to realize uh, the way in which algorithmically controlled uh, bots are impacting what they see and hear and believe. A lot of you probably know that a lot of what you see on social media is impacted by the likes or votes you give a post. Mm-hmm. Something that gets more reaction will be shown to more people. But what you might not realize is that a lot of the entities doing that voting are not real people. The other term you throw around that I'm not familiar with is a sock puppet. Well, I know what a sock puppet is, but not in terms of social media and the online world. Right. So if you can envision a sock puppet in a in children's theater, you know, a hand speaking through a sock, of course, you're not fooled that that's a real person. But many times online, there are accounts that are set up that are very much not real people. And in many cases... A little bit of a look at the larger context will show you that that's not true, although there is in some cases a large investment in making those soft puppets look more and more real. And you might ask, why might I do something like that? Why would somebody set something like that up? Well, a one common attack strategy might be to set up accounts on both sides of a very divisive issue. Um, with the goal of pulling the middle apart, causing chaos. But what does that really do in the end? Like, can you give us an example? Because I, I, I'm still confounded as to why, you know, foreign countries, let's look at Russia, because we know a lot of these troll farms are from there. What is their purpose? That's a really good question. And um, I think the the attack strategy is multifaceted. One divide and conquer. So they are looking for issues that will divide people and they try out these messages. Oh, is this one really divisive? Oh, not not nearly divisive enough. Let's try another one. So they find something that really cuts people apart. Another thing is uh, distrusting anyone who might serve as a leader or a trusted voice. So Um, introducing misinformation, disinformation, sometimes just for the purpose of confusion, of muddying the waters. Um, So if you think about, like, say you took a snake. If you wanted to destroy that snake, you cut it into pieces, that would certainly help. Uh, Cutting the head off uh, would help. And in general, the idea of just demoralizing and confusing. Um, Some of the purpose of the attack is just... Um, making uh, authoritarian regimes look preferable to chaos. You said that, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, bots and these uh, sock puppets, to a certain extent, uh, that we're looking at when it comes to their sites and their social media, sometimes hard to spot. So so what are the harbingers that you pass along uh, to people to, to be safe and make sure that they're following or, uh, you know, reading content of, of a real person and, and not a bot or a sock puppet? Well, sometimes it can be tricky. I mean, if you look at an account, you might see things like it's posting, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day. That's, you know, showing a a pretty serious 
um, investment either in never sleeping or algorithmic control. Sometimes if you look at the history of an account, you might see it's currently labeled as, you know, patriotic army wife in Florida. And if you look back far enough in the history, you might see it was uh, posting in Ukrainian, uh, you know, years ago. But that isn't always the case. It isn't always that simple to just look at um, the history. Sometimes to really see this effect, you need to uh, really be looking at almost from the network perspective of co- collections of accounts that that like in unison or that have the same profile picture. Um, and then is it you know, key to report them? Is that what we need to do? Really, um, if, if platforms wanted to be do, uh, taking those, those accounts down, they have more than enough information to do it. So I think more is, is pressuring platforms. And you see a big push right now, uh, uh, advertisers saying no to Facebook advertising. Mm-hmm. So saying to platforms, you need to do a lot more than you're doing to remove accounts with clear signs of automation and to not allow misinformation and disinformation to run rampant on your platform. It's certainly a different world online. Thank you for some clarification. We appreciate it, Gina. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, giving me a call. Gina Matthews, social media researcher and professor of computer science at Clarkson University. It's 817. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. 709 on the morning news. Global News contributor Matthew Fisher has written a commentary about Canada's foreign policy, or more specifically what he sees as a lack thereof. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Matthew. Uh, Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. So if we begin this conversation, I want to lay out the components. Uh, Under the foreign policy banner, uh, what sorts of items uh, are included within a country's foreign policy? Our relations with international organizations such as NORAD, NATO, uh, the United Nations, the World Bank, uh, uh, things like that, Uh, climate summits uh, where we discuss uh, what to do about uh, climate change. Uh, Then also, of course, uh, multilateral relationships uh, that are informal or ad hoc, but where we are with uh, like-minded nations uh, opposing certain things in human rights, democracy, and uh, some military questions. And then there's the whole question of trade. Where and with whom do we wish to trade? Uh, How much trade can we do? And things that will help the Canadian economy. There's also a consular side about where Canadians are allowed to travel Uh, how good our passports will be in terms of acceptance, and, and of course, what we do to defend those Canadians who are uh, arrested overseas or or who otherwise get in trouble. Matthew, in terms of the foreign policy, you say in your article it's long past time for Canada to abandon the notion that it's a nation of nice guys and gals with big hearts. What exactly do you mean? What, What should Canada be looking to? Well, I think it was for Canadians, not for me and for people who follow this closely, I think, but for most Canadians, it was a shock to see us finish a poor third to Norway and Ireland in the UN Security Council vote a couple of weeks ago. Uh, What it should mean, I think, to 
Canadians, uh, it's, it was Canada Day yesterday. We have internalized an awful lot of our discussion about everything. But uh, in the world, uh, are we a force for good? Are, are we a force that uh, stands up for what is right? Do we assist our closest allies, particularly in security matters? Uh, these are hard questions, and they're questions that Canada really has not addressed in terms of a policy framework, let alone doing something, since uh, Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau the elder, was prime minister. And and even uh, things like, uh, you know, current events such as the pandemic, shining the light on the relationship we have when you talk about, for example, pharmaceuticals and medicines and where we get those from, um, majority coming from China. And we've seen what happened over the past uh, several months with the pandemic. And uh, I know personally, even getting a prescription for myself, I've had to get half that prescription. So uh, and I'm guessing that that's a that's a big one when it comes to pharmaceuticals and medicine. Well, it is part of trade. And how do you protect your nation um, on the question of trade? It's a, it's a, it's a vital one uh, beyond just the question of the pandemic and sharing information and also looking, <clears throat> excuse me, at the role that Canada had in the pandemic, even at home compared to the world. We tend to compare ourselves to the United States and so much we have about the pandemic and are feeling pretty good. But if you actually look at our numbers compared to Norway or Australia or Taiwan, New Zealand, we have done a very poor job and we're very slow off the mark. Canadians don't see that because we are just blitzed with American information. So true. So is it time to just develop a new strategy? We've got to get down to it. And what would that look like, do you think? Well, I I think it's not for me to say. I think it is for Canadians to discuss. Uh, I think the fundamental question, the biggest one that we face right now as a nation is what will our relationship be with China? Will we do more in the security realm in the Indo-Pacific? Australia yesterday, despite the problems of the economic fallout uh, from uh, the coronavirus, uh, that it's going to increase defense spending by 40%. Well, of course, that's not even the beginning of a debate in Canada. What uh, Australia is doing is specifically because of China. Canada has been beaten up by China, and we still... I don't want to offend them by being very hard and criticizing them about anything. It's not about going to war against China. It is about protecting ourselves in trade, for example, pharmaceuticals, as Andrew mentioned earlier. And it is about protecting our citizens above all else. And we don't seem to be able to do that. China, I think there's every chance we'll kidnap more Canadians to try to win their diplomatic points. And that is an obscenity. That's not the way the world is supposed to behave at all. So does this fall then on Trudeau's shoulders or is this something that we've seen, you know, a lack of leadership on for many years? We have not seen any big leadership on this for 50 years. I think it has accelerated or become quite worse under the Trudeau government. But remember the election uh, last year, there was to be a debate on foreign policy at the Monk School in Toronto. Well, first, the prime minister said, I want no part of that. I have no interest. I'm not going. And then the bigger shock to me was that the Conservative Party and the NDP both said, fine, 
We don't want to talk about foreign policy either. Foreign policy matters. The most recent polls show that 85% of Canadians are extremely leery about the relationship that we've developed in the past few years with China. This started long before Justin Trudeau cozying up to China trying to get trade, but certainly in the past few years and before the Meng to Michaels dispute, Canada tried to be China's best friend in the world, and where the heck did that get us? So being 50 years, do we place blame on, a, on one government or, or one era that let this go to the wayside? Because it would seem to me with the, all the you know, different key items you mentioned under foreign policy and the umbrella, to have a strong foreign policy should be, I would think, one of our uh, you know, greatest goals should be one of our greatest goals. You're absolutely right, Andrew. We are a nation with a huge coastline, the Arctic Ocean, the Pacific, and the Atlantic. We do almost nothing in the Canadian North, uh, which I find quite shocking. Uh, and I speak of that in terms of business. I speak of that in terms of security. China is now interested in uh, the Arctic, exploiting the resources there. Russia is way ahead of us in putting troops and military establishments up there. The United States is now moving to do quite a bit to counter that. And uh, Canada has built a couple of patrol ships or is building them, and that's about it. This blame can go way back. Uh, There was an attempt by Joe Clark for a foreign policy. That uh, got defeated because Joe Clark was the prime minister for about 30 seconds. And then there was the problem with Paul Martin. He had a a foreign policy of sorts that he wanted to discuss, but it came out and he immediately lost to Stephen Harper. Harper did very little on this other than, of course, Afghanistan, where we were with our allies. That was a liberal government that approved the mission, but it was the Harper government that provided the instruments uh, for uh, that war. And then the Trudeau government really has uh, Harper cut uh, foreign aid. Trudeau was a government then cut foreign aid. Even more than that, uh, Harper cut peacekeeping, Trudeau cut it even more. Whether you're a pacifist and want us to do more peacekeeping or you're somebody who wants us to take a stronger security stance, we've failed in both and we've also failed in helping the developing world with money. And now we're going to say, oh, COVID, we can't spend any money. Australia's finding the money. Canada, I suspect, is going to say, oh, no, we're going to have to withdraw even further from the world. And meanwhile, we continue to pat ourselves on the back. You know that line, Canada is back. Well, it was a pretty empty expression. Thank you so much, Matthew. Sorry, we've got to leave it there. But thank you for your opinion on this this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Sue. That's Global News contributor Matthew Fisher. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master plan community. 909 on the morning news. And if you feel like the prices you pay for everyday goods has increased since the beginning of the pandemic, you're not alone. With the results on a new poll, an Ipsos poll on the cost of food and goods and services, we're joined by Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. This wasn't a small poll either, was it? How, how many countries uh, were looked at? I think we looked at 15. It was about 18,000 people that we looked uh, at across, uh, across the world. Combination of developed and developing markets. So pretty good sense of what's happening, I would say, globally uh, in terms of public opinion on this. 
And overall, can you break down the numbers? What did you find? And, and specifically, what did you find here in Canada? Well, the big number, I think the headline in all of this is uh, almost 70% of the world thinks that it's paying more for food, groceries, and household supplies. And Canada is almost on that, that average number. So those kinds of things we absolutely think that we're paying more for. Now, interestingly, it could be a combination of people feeling like the prices have gone up, but it also is uh, people buying things that they feel are more expensive or investing in things, uh, maybe more luxury-type products than they were before. I guess spending some time at home makes you contemplate maybe uh, having some things that will give you more pleasure mm-hmm. imported into your life. But uh, So it's a combination of those two things, I would say. Any areas, uh, talk about any of the uh, people you polled in different countries say costs have decreased? Yeah, actually in Canada, I can give you a great one. It's the cost of transportation. So people feel like uh, the food costs have gone up, uh, grocery costs have gone up, household supplies and utilities and things like like that in Canada. The cost of transportation has gone down, and that's because obviously we're not we're not uh, driving. I know I filled up my car for the first time I think last week, and it was the first time since March. <laughs> Wow, yeah. I think that's an experience for for an awful lot of people right now. Agree. What about things that uh, make us personally happy that, you know, the kind of things we pamper ourselves with? Do people think that that's gone up or down, stayed the same? I think what on that one, we're spending more on it if if it falls into that groceries, household supplies, uh, food type category. So we are spending more there. But interestingly, for example, beauty supplies. In Canada, we're not really spending that much more on that, and I guess that's because we don't feel a need to be externally beautiful. <laughs> we're not we're not leaving our houses. Maybe we're buying some special stuff to look better on Zoom or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, turn the lights really down. <laughs> yeah, turn, that's all you need to do. Exactly. Get that mood lighting just right. Yeah. <laughs> did, it, did it seem like with with all these different countries, did it seem like one area of the world uh, has higher costs than other areas of the world? Is it due to distance from from uh, you know I guess. Um, those major suppliers? Uh, well, there, there's a bit of that, but the one that really jumped out at me was the cost of health care. Oh, okay. So one of the things that we did ask people was the, the cost of their health care. Canada, people don't really feel that it's going up. It's you know, around 10%. But if you go to other places where they don't have our type of health care system, people are under pressure as a result of uh, increasing health care costs. So uh, one thing, you know, the day after Canada Day that we should probably be grateful for is what our our, our ancestors have done to create the health care system that mm. we have because we're getting through this uh, from that perspective in a better way than many other countries. So true. What about, Daryl, you know, we're at home, we're, we're, we've got the power, the lights are on, maybe you had to turn the heat up there once in a, you know, once in a blue moon, but utility bills and that sort of thing, anything that you found yeah. in your polling with that? Yeah, disproportionately in Canada, we, we think that it's going up. So the two big uh, movers that we've seen are those basic household, household products like foods, groceries, and household supplies and utilities okay. are the two things that are moving up. And again, that might be because people are working at home. It might be because they're upgrading their, uh, uh, their Internet service. It could be for a variety of reasons, not all of them because the price of it is actually going up, but because maybe their demands are changing. All those Just TVs like are... Car, yeah, exactly. Exactly what you're saying. Okay. How many TVs can you watch in one day, right? But, uh, <laughs> oh, my teens can watch. Yeah, I was going to say a lot. Have three or four on <laughs> at the same time. And something we've uh, revisited, I'd like to revisit, we talk about quite frequently uh, with you, Daryl, is how quickly these polls can change. Like, for example, this may have been a lot different even a month ago uh, compared to, to, to this month. 
Well, you know what's really interesting to me, I'm actually just writing something about this right now, just as we speak, uh, the uh, universality of all of this. I mean, th- that's the, the thing that I really find astounding about what's gone on with the COVID crisis. This is the first time in human history that we've shut down everything this fast. We've never shut down everything before. Even going back to, you know, the f- first humans, it was pretty rare that everything would be, ever be shut down all at once and so quickly. And that people are living through this experience in very similar ways, whether they live in Delhi, India, or whether they're living in Calgary. Uh, the same types of concern. They have the same types of concerns. They're dealing with the same types of pressures. And this is the first time we can ever really measure that, too, because we can actually interview people in Delhi and interview people in Calgary at around the same time uh, with the same capabilities. So um, we're, we're documenting all of these changes that are happening. Uh, and the thing that's going to be really interesting for me in all of this is what endures. I mean, what is going to become part of our regular life? I'm reading a lot of hot takes about how everything's changed. I don't know that it will. Um, there's some parts that might, but tracking all of this through time, we'll be able to identify which uh, which things are going to be the things that are going to become permanent behaviors. And another quick question then from the uh, through the lens of a pollster, has uh, this shutdown made your job uh, easier as far as, you know, the amount of people that are a- be- being able to access uh, uh, during well, having time on their hands and uh, the amount of people who are willing to take the time to take a poll? Yes. Yes. So a, lot of the, a, a lot of the research that we do uh, uh, used to be by telephone. People wouldn't respond to them. So most research is moved online now. And people do have time, and, and, and uh, they're easier to get a hold of. And also they're more thoughtful, I would say. So um, whether we're talking to people through the process of just doing a typical survey or we open it up more for more commentary, the, the kinds of things that you're reading about how people are living through uh, this very unique uh, part of human history is really compelling. Um, and we're developing, I don't want to get too misty-eyed about this, but we really are developing the, the artifacts for the historians of the future who are going to look back and try and understand what was going on. Uh, and in the past, all you'd be able to do is look at, like, newspaper editorials or, you know, some, uh, you know, count whatever decided to write a memoir about what was happening. Now we're getting all of this information from the day-to-day lives of people about what they're living through and what they're going through, and it is very compelling. Thank you so much for all the info, Daryl. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. Fascinating, and it's yeah. true. I mean, if, if I'm running around and I'm busy, I don't have time for a pollster, but right now, maybe not running around answer Gives this question. Gives you more time. They can maybe even, again, as Daryl indicated there and alluded to, put more, uh, you know, uh, longer questions or more in-depth questions because people are willing to share their stories. So true. Uh, coming up on 917, by the way, text line is open if you have anything to say about that. 403-974-8255. We'll get to your texts in just a moment. It is time, though, for helicopter traffic. And uh, this time around, it is brought to you by... West District, West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes townhomes, and condos. It's 642 now, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, many Canadians were accessing health care via video and mobile technology, which was highlighting the benefits of telehealth. So should that be something that is here to stay? We're joined by medical doctor and health policy researcher at McMaster University to figure it out, Dr. Ahmad Khalid. Morning, doctor. How are you? Good morning. Good to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. So does it seem like telemedicine then is something both physicians and patients are interested in keeping? 
Absolutely. I think for the longest time, what we were seeing is that there was a bit of a resistance from the system to adapt to this idea of implementing telehealth across the country. But what COVID-19 has done, really, it's put this extra fire under the wood, is what I would like to call it, and really sort of push the idea that we need telehealth, that people have seen the benefit of it, that physicians appreciate uh, the implementation of it. And now government, uh, governments across all our provinces are really looking keen into making this more of a stable thing in our system. Dr. Khalid, you, you break it down to four main areas why this is a benefit. If you want to list off those four for us. Sure. So for me, it's always a comes to the patient first. Uh, I think we need to make sure that our patients get access to care in a timely way, an appropriate way. And telehealth does that. In the comfort of your own home, uh, you are provided care so you don't have to waste time taking uh, time off work to access your family physician or actually leaving your home in case of a mobility issue. You're able to access that care at home in a timely way. That's number one. But number two, also, it saves the system a lot of money. And, the, and by that, I mean that when we see patients getting the care in an appropriate time, in an early time frame, there will be less crowding in emergency rooms and there will be less time in hospitalization. And we all know that when people, when patients are hospitalized, it actually costs the the system and the individual quite a lot of money. And third, evidence-based medicine. It helps us make sure that our physicians who are practicing in the field have access to our patients' information in a timely manner and are able to exchange that information between family physicians and specialists in a much more easier, comprehensive way than we currently have. And lastly, and obviously there are many other reasons, but those are the four more important ones, is that we're able to make sure that uh, physicians are uh, providing care that, that's conducive to the practice. And by that, I mean is that they're wasting less time between transitioning between one patient to another and actually maximizing the time they're actually seeing patients. Mm-hmm. So how do, what do we do next? I mean, how do we go about it? Is, it? is it on the patient now to push doctors and try to make sure that this infrastructure just continues to be built out and it's something we can always get at? Or are the doctors behind to push for to making this bigger and better? That's an excellent question. I think it's twofold. I think it's both us, the patients, the people of Canada, sort of pushing forward this idea that we are happy about telehealth and we want it. We're seeing that across provinces, across the country. We're seeing more and more patients speak up and say, you know, my mother, who's 61 years old, I'll share that with you. She had, uh, she needed, a, she had problems in her hand during COVID. She really enjoyed being able to access her family doctor and now is making it public whenever she can to tell others of her friends, a similar age demographic, how good it was for her. We need more people to showcase that, but we also need our policymakers to really push forward legislation that allows better funding models. Because currently, if you're a doctor in Alberta trying to see a patient in Ontario, you can't be paid for it. You have to be paid within oh. the province. That causes a bit of a problem. Okay. So obviously pushed to the forefront uh, because of the pandemic, something we've talked about as Canadians for quite some time when it comes to telemedicine. Does this bring us on par with other areas of the world or, or other areas of the world uh, ahead of us when it comes to using something like this for healthcare? Yes, I think we are looking at, you know, you have to remember in Canada, we were a pioneer. We were one of the early ones who actually were championing telehealth. And for many, many reasons, we sort of lagged behind. And now we're trying to play catch up. And we are getting there. We look at Australia, a country that has a similar health system than ours. They're also very much uh, on a fast track towards making telehealth the main form of delivering care in Australia. They did it because of COVID and it really spread the process. Fascinating discussion, and it just makes sense. Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor, with your perspective on this. 
happy to speak to you. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Ahmad Khalid talking about telemedicine. Is it here to stay? 647, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. flashing in the southeast at Ogden Road and 50th Avenue, so that'll require a couple of extra minutes to get through, but uh, otherwise, the major southeast routes are off to a good start. Deerfoot Trail northbound, sitting at nine minutes from Stony Trail up towards 17th Avenue, 52nd Street, great option out of New Brighton and Mackenzie Town, all the way up towards Glenmore Trail, and Glenmore itself, westbound lanes, you're coming in from Langdon or heading off of Stony Trail, are uh, problem-free all the way out towards Deerfoot. We also have a collision up in the northwest, impacting westbound Northmount Drive, just after 14th Street. Emergency crews are blocking that single lane, so uh, you are using uh, single lane alternating traffic on the eastbound side to get by. Ever wonder what that blue cow logo stands for? It means the Canadian dairy farmer worked hard to bring you high quality Canadian dairy. So take a moment to be proud. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Kijiji is launching a new shop local section on their site within their Kijiji village to help us easily find businesses in our neighborhoods that are open and offering some form of contactless payment or pickup. Joining us with all the details is Kent Sixstrom, who is the community relations manager for Kijiji Canada. Hi, Kent. How's it going today? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain, first of all, start with Kijiji village, because I know that's something new that you introduced not too long ago. Absolutely. So Kijiji Village is our latest category that we launched a couple of months ago, uh, really when the pandemic started to become a surge in Canada and across the world. And what we saw at the time was that there were many people who were going through hardship at the outset, and they were looking to either offer support to the community or seek support from, again, uh, their local community in general. And so we created Kijiji Village as a platform, as a destination to help connect local communities so they could find the support that they needed. So the village is up and running, and then you decide to take it one step further, and under the umbrella of the village, uh, really make a difference for those people who, who uh, you know, have local businesses and give them a chance to shine. Is that right? Exactly. So I think we can all agree that small and medium-sized businesses are the heart and soul of our communities. Uh, They really make our neighborhoods great places to live and work. And we recognized that so many businesses across Canada have had their operations disrupted. But at the same time, so many of these businesses have adapted and have become resilient very quickly. And so they've started to offer contactless options, as the, the term you used earlier, to help Canadians continue to find what they need. And so we created this Shop Local Businesses landing page which is sort of of an offshoot of Kijiji Village, where inventory offered by these businesses um, is available and that they offer uh, some contactless transaction in some way, shape or form. I see it. It's easy to find. You open up your Kijiji app and there it is. It's got a little nice Canadian maple leaf and it says Kijiji Village, so easy to track it down. Was there a demand for this? Were you getting businesses asking you for this help? Or is this something Kijiji just said, hey, you know what, this is going to make things easier for everybody involved? I think it was a mixture of both, quite honestly. Um, What I love about our community is that they're very vocal about what they want and need. (laughs) And Kijiji really is a staple for so many people. And so we we listened to the feedback from the community, businesses who were desperate to offer their inventory on the site, but they also recognized that a lot of people were reticent to necessarily go out in person or go to a shop. Many shops weren't even open to begin with. And so we recognize the community need for such a section, 
and we allowed people to indicate these new contactless attributes um, so that people would understand which businesses were open and what types of alternative transactions they offered. Ken, can you give us an idea of what types of business have taken advantage of this? Are these strictly like, you know, smaller shops that sell products? Are they services as well, or does it run the gamut? Mm -hmm. It's quite a gamut, honestly. Um, So when you're talking about uh, this curated section and looking at the different types of businesses, you're looking at things like, you know, people offering home and garden, like patio and garden furniture for sale. Uh, You're looking at online tutors or music teachers who are offering lessons online. Um, You're looking at fitness instructors who are doing yoga classes online. I personally have done some form of online meditation as well. Uh, Landscaping, outdoor maintenance, electronics companies, really is a wide spectrum here. Let's face it too, Kent. I mean, during this pandemic, we were cleaning out our homes like mad, getting rid of stuff, selling stuff, maybe buying something different. What are people doing in terms of, you know, searches and and purchases in Alberta right now on Kijiji? What's big? It's really interesting. So uh, if you go back to March and sort of trace Uh, back over the last couple of months, you really see three areas where Canadians were particularly interested. Uh, So number one, people were very desperate to stay in shape, I think. And I think myself, I'm certainly included in that category. And so we actually saw quite a surge in searches for bicycles and like stationary mm-hmm. bikes, like mm-hmm. ellipticals, uh, free weights, gym equipment in general. And that was, that was definitely a big one. The second one that we saw was an increase in um, basically outdoor and garden supply. So people staying at home or stuck at home realizing, hey, this is the perfect time actually to work on my garden or to do that renovation that I've been putting off for a couple of years. So that was really interesting to see. And then finally, uh, for gamers like myself, we saw a huge surge in video game searches for consoles, especially for the Nintendo Switch. And um, that also incorporates electronics like computers and home office and things like that. So very understandable, but it's always very interesting to see what people are particularly interested by. So true. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Kent. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That is Kent Sixtrom, Community Relations Manager for Kijiji Canada. I love that they are doing that and, you know, helping out the smaller little retailers because everybody needs a little boost right now in terms of, you know, we've Mm -hmm. lost so much in the last three months of being out and about and spending our money. So to give a little boost, a little helping hand to local retailers, I think is super smart. Well, we're seeing we're seeing this crossover because these online companies see the value. Um, And I think of a couple of examples. Look at Etsy. Mm -hmm. I've never been on Etsy. From what I understand, they focus on local businesses. Then you look at Walmart. We announced it in our business report, I think, last month or a month and a half ago, that Walmart online is going to dedicate a section to used items. So obviously going after uh, the Kijiji's. Let's get some of that money. The marketplaces of the world. And you can't be everything to everybody. But, you know, for example, you look at these crossovers, and I know that you're a bigger user uh, on Facebook Marketplace than Kijiji. I used to be big on Kijiji, but it seems sort of everybody moved over to marketplace but maybe with this addition uh, of you know the village with through Kijiji maybe that's their attempt to get everybody to come back I mean it's smart makes sense right yeah, yeah. well and, and and to Kent's uh, points there within the interview I at the very beginning started to look at fitness equipment I had the greatest intentions in the world <laughs> and you're a little late to the party <laughs> though very, everybody else had the same idea was. yeah so yeah the ebb and flow is crazy and even during the pandemic I have 
I've not sold anything on Kijiji. I'm a bigger seller than, uh, you know, buyer. But yeah, me too. Particularly if, if, if it's sitting there, if it's collecting dust, why not let somebody else get use out of it? And maybe you make a couple bucks. Maybe you can go for dinner or buy a pizza from those proceeds. Absolutely. But I was looking for, um, in the pandemic, the other thing is with the, the physical fitness equipment, and we heard, you know, that it was uh, yeast run runs on yeast, different things. Yep. Basketball nets. I've won, yes. I wanted one for my alley. And trampolines. Yeah. Oh, trampolines. You went through Forget that as well. You looked, you looked on the used market. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I looked on the new market first. Well, I looked on the used market, couldn't find anything. Looked on the new market. Uh, everybody was sold out, even the Toys R Us, uh, the Sport Checks, Canadian Tires. But then finally on Kijiji one day, and it's interesting because they have algorithms like anything else, which is interesting because we're going to be talking about your online searches and the information that's collected later in the program. This little basketball net uh, popped up. It was 20 bucks. I have to get the hardware, and you know, because it's, uh, yeah, it's older. Sure. And uh, I offered him 15 because that's how I roll. So he took 15. So I went up to his garage. He was cleaning out his garage. He stood his distance. Yeah. I uh, handed the money over as far as I could reach, and I took this basketball net. So the, the deals are still to be had. Oh, absolutely. You just have to be on top. I've sold a bunch of stuff through the pandemic, and I just leave it out on the front step. You know, not expensive stuff because then you know, you're maybe a little iff- iffy. But you, but-, get, but you get underlined and underscore that you want to get rid of it anyway, Exactly. Right? So, you know, if I can make $15, $20 and somebody gets something that they really wanted, I, f- I feel it's a great thing. So you ju- I just leave it out on the front porch. I ask them to stick the money under the yeah. rug at the front door. Bada boom, bada bing, contactless. You get what you want. I get what I want. And life is good. Have you been part of that one system where they have the bins on the front? Yes. Door? Yeah. Is that is that Facebook Marketplace or is that different? That's, I think, Marketplace, but I think any of them do it now. They yeah, just the call bin. it the bin system. The bin system. You, you, you see the bin, Simple. you put it in, you put your money in. Yeah. And they take their bin away at the end of the day yep. and you're good to go. It's safe. It's it's It was contactless before contactless was cool. Right. True. Oh, man. So many different ways. But uh, Kijiji, got to give them a tip of the hat when, and whenever the big guys are doing something for local businesses. Mm-hmm. It's 617. Now it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city. You've heard reports that hackers and even foreign governments are using social media to manipulate and hack you, and you're likely wondering, how can it happen? So to find out, we are chatting this morning with social media researcher and a professor of computer science at Clarkson University in New York, Gina Matthews. Hi, Gina. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. I was reading your article and we just thought it was fascinating and needed to get a, a little bit of a deeper dive to try and figure things out. So you talk in, in your article a lot about bots and the role they play within social media. So can you break down some of what what maybe we don't even have any ideas happening right now? Yeah, I think most people would be surprised to realize uh, the way in which algorithmically controlled Uh, bots are impacting what they see and hear and believe. A lot of, you probably know that a lot of what you see on social media is impacted by the likes or votes you give a post. Mm -hmm. Something that gets more reaction will be shown to more people. But what you might not realize is that a lot of the entities doing that voting are not real people. The other term you throw around that I'm not familiar with is a sock puppet. I know what a sock puppet is, but not in terms of social media and the online world. Right. So if you can envision a sock puppet in a, in children's theater, you know, a hand speaking through a sock, of course, you're not fooled that that's a real person. But many times online, there are accounts that are set up that are very much not real people. And in many cases, 
a little bit of a look at the larger context will show you that that's not true. Although there is in some cases a large investment in making those soft puppets look more and more real. And you might ask, why might I do something like that? Why would somebody set something like that up? Well, a one common attack strategy might be to set up accounts on both sides of a very divisive issue um, with the goal of pulling the middle apart, causing chaos. But what does that really do in the end? Like, can you give us an example? Because I, I, I'm still confounded as to why, you know, foreign countries, let's look at Russia, because we know a lot of these troll farms are from there. What is their purpose? That's a really good question. And um, I think the, the attack strategy is multifaceted. One, divide and conquer. So they are looking for issues that will divide people. And they try out these messages. Oh, is this one really divisive? Oh, not, not nearly divisive enough. Let's try another one. So they find something that really cuts people apart. Another thing is uh, distrusting anyone who might serve as a leader or a trusted voice. So um, introducing misinformation, disinformation, sometimes just for the purpose of confusion, of muddying the waters. Um, so if you think about, like, say you took a snake, what, if you wanted to destroy, destroy that snake, you cut it into pieces, that would certainly help. Uh, cutting the head off uh, would help. And in general, the idea of just demoralizing and confusing. Um, some of the purpose of the attack is just um, making uh, authoritarian regimes look preferable to chaos. Hmm. You said that, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, bots and these uh, sock puppets to a certain extent uh, that we're looking at when it comes to their sites and their social media, sometimes hard to spot. So so what are the harbingers that you pass along uh, to people to, to be safe and make sure that they're following or, uh, you know, reading content of, of a real person and, and not a bot or a sock puppet? Well, sometimes it can be tricky. I mean, if you look at an account, you might see things like it's posting you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day, that's, you know, showing a, a pretty serious um, investment either in never sleeping or algorithmic control. Sometimes if you look at the history of an account, you might see it's currently labeled as, you know, patriotic army wife in Florida. And if you look back far enough in the history, you might see it was uh, posting in Ukrainian, uh, you know, years ago. But that isn't always the case. It isn't always that simple to just look at um, the history. Sometimes to really see this effect, you need to uh, really be looking at almost from the network perspective of co collections of accounts that, that like in unison or that have the same profile picture. Um, and then is it you know, key to report them? Is that what we need to do? Really, um, if, if platforms wanted to be do, uh, taking those, those accounts down, they have more than enough information to do it. So I think more is, is pressuring platforms. And you see a big push right now, uh, uh, advertisers saying no to Facebook advertising. Mm -hmm. So saying to platforms, you need to do a lot more than you're doing to remove accounts with clear signs of automation and to not allow misinformation and disinformation to run rampant on your platform. It's certainly a different world online. Thank you for some clarification. We appreciate it, Gina.
My pleasure. Thanks for uh, giving me a call. Gina Matthews, social media researcher and professor of computer science at Clarkson University. It's 817. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. 709 on the morning news. Global News contributor Matthew Fisher has written a commentary about Canada's foreign policy or more specifically what he sees as a lack thereof. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Matthew. Uh, good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. So if we begin this conversation, I want to lay out the components. Uh, under the foreign policy banner, uh, what sorts of items uh, are included within a country's foreign policy? Our relations with international organizations such mm-hmm. as NORAD, NATO, uh, the United Nations, the World Bank, uh, Uh, Things like that, Uh, climate summits, uh, where we discuss uh, what to do about uh, climate change. Uh, Then also, of course, uh, multilateral relationships uh, that are informal or ad hoc, but where we are with uh, like-minded nations uh, opposing certain things in human rights, democracy, and Uh, some military questions, and then there's the whole question of trade. Where and with whom do we wish to trade? Uh, How much trade can we do? And things that will help the Canadian economy. There's also a consular side about where Canadians are allowed to travel, uh, how good our passports will be in terms of acceptance, and, and of course, what we do to defend those Canadians who are Uh, arrested overseas or or who otherwise get in trouble. Matthew, in terms of the foreign policy, you say in the article it's long past time for Canada to abandon the notion that it's a nation of nice guys and gals with big hearts. What exactly do you mean? What what should Canada be looking to? Well, I think it was for Canadians, not for me and for people who follow this closely, I think, but for most Canadians, it was a shock to see us finish a poor third to Norway and Ireland and the UN Security Council vote a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what it should mean, I think, to Canadians, uh, it's it was Canada Day yesterday. We have internalized an awful lot of our discussion about everything. But uh, in the world, uh, are we a force for good? Are, are we a force that uh, stands up for what is right? Do we assist our closest allies, particularly in security matters. Uh, These are hard questions, and they're questions that Canada really has not addressed in terms of a policy framework, let alone doing something, since uh, Pierre Trudeau. Trudeau the Elder was Prime Minister. And and even uh, things like, uh, you know, current events such as the pandemic, shining the light on the relationship we have when you talk about, for example, pharmaceuticals and medicines and where we get those from, um, majority coming from China. And we've seen what happened over the past uh, several months with the pandemic. And uh, I know personally, even getting a prescription for myself, I've had to get half that prescription. So, uh, and I'm guessing that that's that's a big one when it comes to pharmaceuticals and medicine. Well, it is part of trade. And how do you protect your nation um, on the question of trade? It's a, it's a, it's a vital one uh, beyond just the question of the pandemic and sharing information and also looking, <clears throat> excuse me, at the role that Canada had 
in the pandemic, even at home, compared to the world. We tend to compare ourselves to the United States and so much we have about the pandemic and are feeling pretty good. But if you actually look at our numbers compared to Norway or Australia or Taiwan, New Zealand, we have done a very poor job and we're very slow off the mark. Canadians don't see that because we are just blitzed with American information. So true. So is it time to just develop a new strategy? We've got to get down to it. And what would that look like, do you think? Well, I I think it's not for me to say. I think it is for Canadians to discuss. Uh, I think the fundamental question, the biggest one that we face right now as a nation is what will our relationship be with China? Will we do more in the security realm in the Indo-Pacific? Australia yesterday, despite the problems of the economic fallout uh, from uh, the coronavirus, uh, that it's going to increase defense spending by 40%. Well, of course, that's not even the beginning of a debate in Canada. What uh, Australia is doing is specifically because of China. Canada has been beaten up by China, and we still... Uh, don't want to offend them by being very hard and criticizing them about anything. It's not about going to war against China. It is about protecting ourselves in trade, for example, pharmaceuticals, as Andrew mentioned earlier. And it is about protecting our citizens above all else. And we don't seem to be able to do that. China, I think there's every chance we'll kidnap more Canadians to try to win their diplomatic points. And that is an obscenity. That's not the way the world is supposed to behave at all. So does this fall then on Trudeau's shoulders or is this something that we've seen, you know, a lack of leadership on for many years? We have not seen any big leadership on this for 50 years. I think it has accelerated or become quite Uh, worse under the Trudeau government. But remember the election uh, last year, there was to be a debate on foreign policy at the Monk School in Toronto. Well, first, the prime minister said, I want no part of that. I have no interest. I'm not going. And then the bigger shock to me was that the Conservative Party and the NDP both said, fine, we don't want to talk about foreign policy either. Foreign policy matters. The most recent polls show that 85% of Canadians are extremely leery about the relationship that we've developed in the past few years with China. This started long before Justin Trudeau cozying up to China trying to get trade. But certainly in the past few years and before the Meng to Michaels dispute, Canada tried to be China's best friend in the world. And where the heck did that get us? So being 50 years, do we place blame on, a, on one government or, or one era that let this go to the wayside? Because it would seem to me with the, all the you know, different key items you mentioned under foreign policy and the umbrella, to have a strong foreign policy should be, I would think, one of our uh, you know, greatest goals should be one of our greatest goals. You're absolutely right, Andrew. We are a nation with a huge coastline, the Arctic Ocean, the Pacific, and the Atlantic. We do almost nothing in the Canadian North, uh, which I find quite shocking. Uh, and I speak of that in terms of business. I speak of that in terms of security. China is now interested in uh, the Arctic, exploiting the resources there. Russia is way ahead of us in 
putting troops and military establishments up there. The United States is now moving to do quite a bit to counter that. And uh, Canada has built a couple of patrol ships or is building them, and that's about it. This blame can go way back. Uh, There was an attempt by Joe Clark for a foreign policy. That uh, got defeated because Joe Clark was the prime minister for about 30 seconds. And then there was the problem with Paul Martin. He had a a foreign policy of sorts that he wanted to discuss, but it came out and he immediately lost to Stephen Harper. Harper did very little on this other than, of course, Afghanistan, where we were with our allies. That was a liberal government that approved the mission, but it was the Harper government that provided the instruments uh, for uh, that war. And then the Trudeau government really has uh, Harper cut uh, foreign aid. Trudeau was the government then cut foreign aid. Even more than that, uh, Harper cut peacekeeping, Trudeau cut it even more. Whether you're a pacifist and want us to do more peacekeeping, or you're somebody who wants us to take a stronger security stance, we've failed in both, and we've also failed in helping the developing world with money. And now we're going to say, oh, COVID, we can't spend any money. Australia's finding the money. Canada, I suspect, is going to say, oh, no, we're going to have to withdraw even further from the world. And meanwhile, we continue to pat ourselves on the back. You know that line, Canada is back. Well, it was a pretty empty expression. Thank you so much, Matthew. Sorry we've got to leave it there, but thank you for your opinion on this this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Sue. That's Global News contributor Matthew Fisher. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master plan community. 909 on the morning news. And if you feel like the prices you pay for everyday goods has increased since the beginning of the pandemic, you're not alone. With the results on a new poll, an Ipsos poll on the cost of food and goods and services, we're joined by Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. This wasn't a small poll either, was it? How, ma- how many countries uh, were looked at? I think we looked at 15. It was about 18,000 people that we looked uh, at across uh, across the world. Combination of developed and developing markets. So pretty good sense of what's happening, I would say, globally uh, in terms of public opinion on this. And overall, can you break down the numbers? What did you find? And, and specifically, what did you find here in Canada? Well, the big number, I think the headline in all of this is uh, almost 70% of the world thinks that it's paying more for food, groceries, and household supplies. And Canada is almost on that, that average number. So those kinds of things we absolutely think that we're paying more for. Now, interestingly, it could be a combination of people feeling like the prices have gone up, but it also is uh, people buying things that they feel are more expensive or investing in things, uh, maybe more luxury-type products than they were before. I guess spending some time at home makes you contemplate maybe uh, having some things that will give you more pleasure mm-hmm. imported into your life. But uh, So it's a combination of those two things, I would say. Any areas, uh, talk about any of the uh, people you polled in different countries say costs have decreased? Yeah, actually in Canada, I can give you a great one. It's the cost of transportation. So people feel like uh, food costs have gone up, uh, grocery costs have gone up, household supplies and utilities and things like like that in Canada. The cost of transportation has gone down, and that's because obviously we're not we're not uh, driving. I know I filled up my car for the first time I think last week, and it was the first time since March. 
Wow, yeah. I think that's an experience for, for an awful lot of people right now. I agree. What about things that uh, make us personally happy that, you know, the kind of things we pamper ourselves with? Do people think that that's gone up or down, stayed the same? I think what on that one, we're spending more on it. If, if it falls into that groceries, household supplies, uh, t- food type category. So we are spending more there. But interestingly, for example, beauty supplies in Canada, we're not really spending that much more on that. And I guess that's because we don't feel a need to be externally beautiful. <laughs> we're not we're not leaving our houses. Maybe we're buying some special stuff to look better on Zoom or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, turn the lights really down. <laughs> yeah, turn, that's all you need to do. Exactly. Get that mood lighting just right. Yeah. <laughs> did, it, did it seem like with, with all these different countries, did it seem like one area of the world uh, has higher costs than other areas of the world? Is it due to distance from, from uh, you know, I guess... Um, those major suppliers? Uh, well, there, there's a bit of that, but the one that really jumped out at me was the cost of health care. Oh, okay. So one of the things that we did ask people was the, the cost of their health care. Canada, people don't really feel that it's going up. It's you know, around 10%. But if you go to other places where they don't have our type of health care system, people are under pressure as a result of uh, increasing health care costs. So uh, one thing, you know, the day after Canada Day that we should probably be grateful for is what our our, our ancestors have done to create the healthcare system that mm. we have because we're getting through this uh, from that perspective in a better way than many other countries. So true. What about Daryl, you know, we're at home, we're we're we've got the power, the lights are on, maybe you had to turn the heat up there once in a you know, once in a blue moon, but utility bills and that sort of thing. Anything that you found yep. in your polling with that? Yeah, disproportionately in Canada, we, we think that it's going up. So the two big uh, movers that we've seen are those basic household, household products like foods, groceries, and household supplies and utilities okay. are the two things that are moving up. And again, that might be because people are working at home. It might be because they're upgrading their, uh, uh, their Internet service. It could be for a variety of reasons, not all of them because the price of it is actually going up, but because maybe their demands are changing. All those Just TVs like are... Car, yeah, exactly. Exactly what you're saying. Okay. How many TVs can you watch in one day, right? But, uh, <laughs> oh, my teens can watch. Yeah, I was going to say a lot. Have three or four on <laughs> at the same time. And something we've uh, revisited, or I'd like to revisit, we talk about quite frequently uh, with you, Daryl, is how quickly these polls can change. Like, for example, this may have been a lot different even a month ago uh, compared to, to, to this month. Well, you know what's really interesting to me, I'm actually just writing something about this right now, just as we speak, uh, the uh, universality of all of this. I mean, th- that's the, the thing that I really find astounding about what's gone on with the COVID crisis. This is the first time in human history that we've shut down everything this fast. We've never shut down everything before. Even going back to, you know, the f- first humans, it was pretty rare that everything would be, ever be shut down all at once and so quickly, and that people are living through this experience in very similar ways, whether they live in Delhi, India, or whether they're living in Calgary. Uh, the same types of concern. they have the same types of concerns, they're dealing with the same types of pressures. And this is the first time we can ever really measure that, too, because we can actually interview people in Delhi and interview people in Calgary at around the same time uh, with the same capabilities. So um, we're, we're documenting all of these changes that are happening. Uh, and the thing that's going to be really interesting for me in all of this is what endures. I mean, what is going to become part of our regular life? I'm reading a lot of hot takes about how everything's changed. I don't know that it will. Um, there's some parts that might, but tracking all of this through time, we'll be able to identify which uh, which things are going to be the things that are going to become permanent behaviors. And another quick question then from the uh, through the lens of a pollster. 
Has uh, this shutdown made your job uh, easier as far as, you know, the amount of people that are being able to access uh, uh, during, well, having time on their hands and uh, the amount of people who are willing to take the time to take a poll? Yes. Yes. A lot of the the research that we do... uh, uh, used to be by telephone, people wouldn't respond to them. So most research has moved online now. And people do have time, and, and, and uh, they're easier to get a hold of. And also they're more thoughtful, I would say. So um, whether we're talking to people through the process of just doing a typical survey or we open it up more for more commentary, the, the kinds of things that you're reading about how people are living through uh, this very unique a part of human history is really compelling. Um, and we're developing, I don't want to get too misty-eyed about this, but we really are developing the, the artifacts for the historians of the future who are going to look back and try and understand what was going on. Uh, and in the past, all you'd be able to do is look at, like, newspaper editorials or, you know, some, uh, you know, count whatever decided to write a memoir about what was happening. Now we're getting all of this information from the day-to-day lives of people about what they're living through and what they're going through, and it is very compelling. Thank you so much for all the info, Daryl. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. Fascinating. And it's yeah. true. I mean, if, if I'm running around and I'm busy, I don't have time for a pollster. But right now, maybe not running around answer gives those questions. you more time. They can maybe even, again, as Daryl indicated there and alluded to, put more, uh, you know, uh, longer questions or more in-depth questions because people are willing to share their stories. So true. Uh, coming up on 917, by the way, text line is open if you have anything to say about that. 403-974-8255. We'll get to your texts in just a moment. It is time, though, for helicopter traffic. And uh, this time around, it is brought to you by... West District, West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes townhomes, and condos. Juno-winning Canadian band Walk Off the Earth celebrated Canada Day in a special way. The band joined forces with another Canadian favourite, French's Ketchup, for a special rendition of our national anthem. Joining us to talk about their unique rendition, we're joined by Walk Off the Earth lead singer Sarah Blackwood. Good morning to you, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. Well, this seems like a perfect fit because uh, you're Canadian. French is Canadian. And people kind of, do you find that people expect Walk Off the Earth to do things off the beaten path with different instruments and, and making music in different ways? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I assume that they do. That's, I think, why some people, you know, want to work with us or collaborate with us because we do things a little bit differently. So we were really excited to work with uh, with French's and to we we like doing the anthem it's always a great challenge because it's always like probably one of the most scrutinized things you can do which we kind of enjoy doing (laughs) no doubt because you can't that's not something you can mess up a national anthem right because then everybody is all over you so did you get lots of good feedback about this because it's pretty fun we did we did yeah and we've done the anthem a few times now and each time people kind of start to accept our creativity a little bit more and more each time so you know the first time we ever did it people were like how could you change the anthem and make it too fun and this and that and we're like you know who we are (laughs) (laughs) yeah there it is and you know who you are and and i'm wondering um you know in your mind what does it mean to be a canadian because we're a unique bunch here we're not uh, americans we have our own identities but i think a lot of canadians might have a hard time putting their finger on what makes us canadian so what's your definition we're probably some of the most friendly people in the world and i know a lot of people will say that but it's really true and i think we have 
such a beautiful country. It's it's a really great place to live, and we're very happy to be Canadian, especially right now. It truly is. You know, as a band, how difficult is it? Is it like it used to be, say, 20 years ago, to be a Canadian band, or is it easier now to be able to get sort of, you know, at least North American play and maybe around the world for your music? Yeah, I think there's a lot of... There's an amazing artist that have come out of Canada more and more each and every single year. And, you know, the rest of the world is starting to recognize Canadian talent. And it's really nice. It's really great. And it's really beneficial for other artists. So we what what we've done is like because we are such, such an Internet band and we create so much content online, our fan base is very so much. So we have an incredible Canadian following, but we also are able to tour the U.S. And, the, and Europe and go over to Australia and Asia and all these places where we still will have fans. So we feel really fortunate for that, um, to be able to bring our Canadian talent to other parts of the world. Sarah, the pandemic has put a wrinkle in everybody's plans, and I'm guessing an international uh, band like yourselves, uh, the same. So tell us about how it's disrupted your tour and uh, what the future holds and how you've adapted. We're kind of being thrown back into where our roots are, which is creating content online. And we're really good at that, you know, without without sounding like I have a big ego. But that's what we've been doing. And that's kind of what broke us into the music industry was our creativity that we put out into the world through social media. So we're back in the studio. We're creating videos. We're making all this online content. We're working with great companies like Frenches and creating all these really collaborative, fun things. But... You know, the world is an unpredictable place and you have to find the silver linings in everything. And that's exactly what we're doing. And to be honest, we're having a really interesting and fun time going back to that and just getting to create really fun content for people to watch, which hopefully is bringing their spirits up throughout the rest of the world. (laughs) No doubt. Well, I mean, that's what you guys are known for. You do some wacky, crazy, fun, fabulous videos. So people should go online, have a look, because there are many of them there, including the one that led us to talk to you. That's you and the boys playing French's ketchup bottles in order to celebrate (laughs) Canada Day. So we thank you for joining us. Uh, I know you've rescheduled your U.S. dates uh, for February of 2021. We wait to hear when you'll be back touring Canada. And we thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you guys. And remember, keep your eyes up because we're going to be releasing tons of live performances and live videos and stuff online. So we're still going to be in people's living rooms. <laughs> no matter what. Love it. Go online. It's walkofftheearth.com. And that is lead singer Sarah Blackwood. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much, you guys. True.